I think something like grief or mourning is the work that love does. That we couldn't grieve if we hadn't loved. And also that in some ways, uh, recognizing and accepting the passing away of the people and things that we love, that's the precondition for loving them. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. Today, I'm in the studio with In Good Faith producer Heather Bigley. Hello. And producer Peter Ellison. Hi. And we want to talk about why we put together this episode on grief in the way we did. And if you're like me, growing up, grief meant somebody died. And yes, that is grief. You might even say that's the extreme form of grief. But as we started thinking, we came up with ideas about all different kinds of grief. And one of them that really struck me because I felt it in big and small ways throughout my life is when you set up an expectation and then it's dashed. For instance, one of our guests, Mark Miner, he has this expectation of this perfect life. He's a straight-A student. He's good in sports. Trying to, in his own mind, hold his family together by being good. So that idea of expectations, I think, is a thread through all of these. Exactly. And one of the people that we were lucky enough to talk to is Dr. Adam Miller. Uh, he's a philosopher and theologian currently working at Collin College in Texas. And a lot of his books touch on this really interesting idea he calls the perpetual passing away. And surprisingly, when he gave that concept, I found myself smiling. <laughs> like, oh yeah, I'm really happy to have a way of processing this and thinking about it. Mm -hmm. So it's not just sadness today. Yes, although we do go to some fairly dark places with Leonard Bagalwa, who is the founder and executive director of Utah Valley Refugees and had a very traumatic and somewhat shocking childhood. Uh, as we talk to him, we get kind of a glimpse at how he carried through. Joanne Cacciatore, she's an amazing person. Uh, she started in her grief and... Maybe lots of people do this. They turn that into positivity for helping other people through maybe what they wish they had had as a resource. Yeah, and I think for me, I mean, just her helpful, concrete uh, instruction on how to talk to people who are experiencing grief, not making it about yourself, asking about what's going on, uh, giving them an opportunity to talk, allowing them not to talk, right? That That to me... Uh, was really eye-opening, and I was grateful to hear it. She's able to cite research that she has conducted. She's a professor at the Arizona State University and really come at this problem from so many different angles and provide relief for so many people. And I was really surprised by the outcome of some of her survey questions. It was not what I would have expected. Not at all. Right. We all can do better is what we learned. <laughs> um, and that's one of the things when I spoke to actually our first guest today, who is Julie Myler Donovan, an elementary ed specialist from Southern Maryland. She talked to me about the difficulty of grief and uh, how people have such a hard time relating to uh, someone going through grief. Um, they ask all the wrong questions and they um, often sort of expect to be comforted by the person who is grieving. Mm. Um, and so it was really interesting to hear sort of what her recommendations were and what her own process was. Uh, she even eventually wrote a children's book to help children process their grief when they lose a sibling. So uh, that's our first uh, interview. I have learned through this that grief is really individual. We all grieve very differently. My husband and I grieve differently. When Addison first passed away, I sought out parents that had lost children. I would talk to anyone that, had, that would talk to me because I had to see that there was hope, there was peace. You could find happiness. You could smile again. Because when you're in it, 
you don't see an end. You don't see ever having happiness or peace again. Unless you've lost a child, you don't understand the grief, the panic, the anger that you experience when all of a sudden, just one day, your child's gone. I prayed all the time and I prayed that she'd be at peace, but then I also prayed that God would help me get through this, giving me the strength to get through this, help me find peace, help my children get through this. In the beginning, it was anger towards God. Why would you take my daughter? What was the purpose? She passed away in our cul-de-sac, diagonal from our house. And I had someone say to me, don't think of it as a place Addison died. Think of it as a place she ascended to heaven. And just that little switch in thinking helped me immensely. But then I was like, okay, this is for my growth, my spiritual growth. What is it I need to learn from this? How can I use this to help other people? This is something traumatic that happened, but I can either let it define who I am or I can use it and try to do something good. And I think her passing has given me more empathy. I don't think I was as empathetic as I could have been. And I see that in working with children that maybe have special needs or think a little bit differently or have a hard day. It's the first thing in my mind is, what is causing this? They have trauma. Instead of getting angry and upset, I try to take them away from the situation that's upsetting them and calm them down and talk to them and really try to listen and just let them know I'm here. Since she's passed, I pray all the time. I don't go to church as much because it's very difficult because that's where her funeral was. There's times I go and I'll sit there and I will sob and I will just cry. And then there's days I go and I feel peace. So it really is how I'm feeling, whether I can go to church, but I pray all the time. And I talk to God. I talk to Addison. Tell us then about the book that you ended up writing. It's called Beautiful Signs When Someone You Love Dies. And it's aimed at children. It's funny because I always would tell Addison, I'm going to write a children's book one day. And so she'd be like, okay, mom, let's write one. And then she made me write one. When she passed away in our family, my kids were grieving. My husband was grieving. I was grieving. And there's lots of books out there for parents. But there weren't a lot of books for kids to kind of just put things in simple terms and just ways that you could connect with someone. And Ava and Ethan would ask me, where do you think Addison is? What do you think she's doing? Because, you know, they go to church, but as a seven-year-old and a nine-year-old, they didn't quite grasp the finality of it. And I honestly believe our brain cannot comprehend never seeing someone again you know, you just learn to live with the absence. And so I really wrote it for them. And for any other children that lose someone, whether it be a sibling, a grandparent, anyone, I just wanted there to be something that they could pick up and someone could read it to them or they could read it to themselves and smile. And then, you know what, maybe go outside. Maybe that four-leaf clover I found is a sign. Or maybe that dragonfly that's whirling around in my head is a sign. They're saying hi, just to give some hope. Tell us about Addison. She just had a lot of empathy towards people. She felt other people's pain. She just was a very kind, caring, nurturing person. She lived a good life in 11 years. Granted, I would, didn't want to lose her, but, um, you know, she did. She lived a full life in her 11 years. And so that makes me at least happy. One of her friends was having a bad day. And so she came home and she made cookies and just wrote letters. She always just tried to make people feel better. With my son who has lung disease, he's not as athletic. He's slower at things. And she was like his number one cheerleader. Always. Come on, bud, you got this. Come on, I'll help you. She always wanted to help. She always wanted to just be there. And if you were upset, she would try to make it better by talking to you, making things for you, trying to get you to laugh. That was Heather speaking with Julie Myler Donovan, mother of Addison, Ava, and Ethan, 
and author of Beautiful Signs, When Someone You Love Dies. Julie's story made us think of the Miss Foundation, M-I-S-S, and its Sela Care Farm near Sedona, Arizona. We spoke with its founder, Joanne Cacciatore, about her motivation in creating the foundation and farm. So I did a study. We had a nice sample in the hundreds, 400, 500, something like that. And we asked people to to basically tell us what good grief support meant to them. I, I couldn't really find articles that defined what grief, what good support for grief is according to grieving people. And they're the experts in their experience. They're the ones who should be telling us what's supportive and what isn't mm -hmm. for them. Um, so we asked them a series of questions in this in this really interesting survey. What kinds of actions are supportive and that you receive as supportive? But also beyond that, what groups of people provided that support best? And uh, we asked about first responders. We asked about therapists and counselors. We asked about clergy and spiritual leaders. We asked about neighbors and friends and colleagues at work. We asked about um, physicians, medical staff. We asked about um, family and friends. We, we, we asked about every human group you can imagine who comes into contact with grieving people. And... Uh, unfortunately, the human groups really flunked out, but I also added in the survey animals and pets and animals and pets blew every human group <laughs> out of the water. 89% <laughs> of grieving people were, were very satisfied or satisfied with the kind of grief support they got from their pets or animals or any pet or animal. And the closest human category, I think, was a support group, a grief support group that came in at 67%. Mm. Is it just the being there? Animals didn't turn away when they were sad, that they didn't try to make them feel better. They didn't go up to them and say, let's go have a drink or let's go to, <laughs> you know, let's go out to dinner or, or, you know, let's do something fun or don't you think you should be feeling better by now or just give it to God or just choose happy or whatever, whatever kind of, you know, practical or verbal platitude that human beings try to override grief with. Animals didn't came with no agenda and no expectation, maybe a belly rub. What people said is my dog or my cat or my horse just would sit with me when I cried. They didn't say anything stupid. They didn't hand me tissues. They didn't take me out for a drink. They just stayed with me. That was the sort of the, 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 the most significant because we did analyze those data too. So what is it animals are doing right that humans <laughs> continuously fail? <laughs> And I think it's that animals are not encumbered by a neocortex, right? Animals are not encumbered by trying to make someone feel better or trying to change how someone feels. Less dominant in the narrative of grieving people in the study was that the animals provided um, a sense of tactile comfort. They yes. stayed here and and you were able to 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 and you were able to physically take care of them. So it was someone else to take care of, which which was also helpful for people. But overwhelmingly, it was just the nature of their presence that they just were steady companions, didn't check out, didn't leave, didn't try to change the griever's state of mind or heart. If a leader wants to be more helpful, how do you witness someone's grief in a way that's helpful to them or supportive of them? I think bearing witness is very important. And I, I encourage uh, faith leaders to leave their Bible outside the hospital room or, or their spiritual book and to just go in and sit with the family and hold their hand and say, how can I be of service right now? What can I do? If the person who's grieving the loss says, I would love some scripture, mm -hmm. go get your Bible or your spiritual book, your holy book, and be careful what you choose because that stays with them. So saying things like God has a plan for you in general, for grieving people in general, in my experience, isn't um, something that grieving people love to hear. Even if God does have a plan for you, I mean, I don't know what's happening. I don't read God's mind. I don't, I don't, you know, that's not my job. But, but we're in physical form right now. And for a, for a mother or a father, there's no better place for their 12-year-old than in their home at night in their bed. It's very easy from the sidelines to tell someone what God's plan is for them. Yeah. When it's not their child who's being buried tomorrow. 
Your bio includes your bachelor's and your master's in psychology from Arizona State and a doctorate from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. But along with that, you say your greatest accomplishment is being mother to five children, now grown, and you note, four who walk and one who soars. What has it added to your study and learning that you have personal experience with this? I wouldn't have gone down this path. I mean, I I hadn't even gone to college when my daughter died. Mm. She's the North Star of everything. I don't think I would have done this voluntarily. It's not the kind of thing you you want to be called to. And and I would give it all back if I could have her, but I don't get that choice. The only choice I have is what do I do with it now? Not in spite of grief, but because of grief. I, I had a, a friend tell me who, who had actually lost a teenage son in a swimming accident um, that we connect at our broken edges. You mentioned that sometimes a, a religion or a, a faith group or a congregation can be a support. Now, that's sometimes, but not always. But can you talk about your experience? I was an atheist for a long time. And I, I don't know exactly where I am. I'm Technically, I'm a Buddhist priest and I teach meditation and I practice Zazen. I practice meditation, mm-hmm. but I'm I'm open. I leave myself open because I just don't know. The reality is I don't know anything for sure. I have feelings about things mm-hmm. oftentimes and they're always evolving and always changing. And sometimes they just go back and forth and back and forth. But I will also say that I have had some profoundly inexplicable spiritual experiences around my daughter's death that I can't describe. I mean, I can't explain scientifically, Mm -hmm. despite being a scientist. Uh, I can't, you can't do a path analysis on these kinds of experiences. You can't statistically analyze them because they are abstract. But I know what I experienced and I know what happened to me and it's undeniable what happened and what I experienced. And those kinds of incidences that have happened to me over the past 28 years since she died are are really what shifted me from being a hardcore atheist to, ah, there's got to be something. There's got to be something. I mean, this can't be coincidence. So I probably at one point would have called myself a secularist, but I'm I I wouldn't say that anymore. I would say that I'm a seeker and I'm always seeking and I'm always questioning. Um, I hope I get to see her again. That Mm. to me, you know, that to me is my greatest, is my heart's greatest desire is that I will see her again. And in fact, I just notice in myself, like it just makes it, I could cry now just talking about it, you know? Yeah. Because the thought that, that I will never see her again is almost too much to bear. It's, it's, for me, it's worse than losing her once. It's like losing her twice. Mm. I just really hold on to that possibility. And I don't dismiss it. I don't, I don't sort of, I don't know for sure. And I'm willing to say that I don't know for sure, but I absolutely hang on to that possibility because um I have so much to tell her. <laughs> um, and I have so much to say to her that I didn't get to say in her very brief life. That was Dr. Joanne Cacciatore sharing insights on how best to support those going through traumatic grief when they've lost a child. Joanne will be presenting at the Grief and Loss in Clinical Practice Conference at BYU on November 4th, 2022. For many of us, the loss of a child would be the worst possible experience we can imagine. But humans face many challenges, and grief accompanies lots of them, including the loss of a homeland. Leonard Begalwa came to the U.S. as a war refugee from the Democratic Republic of Congo. He escaped rebel forces, then migrated through three other countries for five years before the U.S. allowed him entry. Eventually, Leonard moved to Utah and completed a bachelor's in public health and an MBA. Here's Leonard discussing what he misses about his homeland. What I miss back home most is the cultural Ubuntu culture. So Ubuntu means unity, like love, because uh, over there we we live in in family. Like we live in, like uh, we we just say the child uh, is born uh, from one woman, but 
the child have a lot of mothers. So like there's so many mothers, um, like child belongs to the community where I come from. And uh, the, I miss that one a lot uh, here where back home, one thing was strange for me when I come here was I trying to shake people, meet people walking the other side opposite and go try to shake their hand. They are looking at me like I'm crazy. Which in my culture, if you pass someone, especially who's older than you, without saying hello to them, you are very impolite and they can even spank you because the child belongs to everyone to correct you. So I miss unity and I miss that. No matter how poor we were, but we were still happy because uh, we live in, 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 a, in a community that understand each other. I was born in 1980 where... Um, two kingdoms were fighting in my country for land, and and uh, my mother was pregnant, so she she ran in the bush, and uh, that's where I was born. So, uh, and uh, when you ask my mother, she describes me as I was very small because uh, I was born premature, very small, and uh, she didn't expect for me to leave. So that's how my life started. So she named me Mirindi. That's my name, my native name, Mirindi, which means always on the run or a refugee. And I never know myself in my life I can ever be in a, uh, a refugee camp or be a, called a refugee in a different country. When I left uh, my home country, I was um, 17 years old. I was kidnapped and I was used as a child soldier in 1997. Uh, I lost two siblings in the same um, uh, play, like same event uh, where they were looking for me after I escaped and they killed my two siblings. But uh, most of my siblings and parents are still uh, back home. My father's alive and my mother's alive, as well as uh, um, my two sisters and one old brother. So when I come to the United States, which I thought the life would be now more easy, but I was wrong, completely wrong. Refugees' stories is the same as every refugees. When you run, you don't know anywhere you're going. And I felt the sorrow. Imagine yourself leaving your home country, leaving everything behind. All my childhood was robbed uh, in everything. And then from uh, and I was born in the village in the third world country and be... Uh, in the first world country in the, in the Salt Lake City. So life wasn't easy. It was hard learning, starting from learning language to learning the culture to learning how to, uh, to navigate things around you, like even switching the light and using the bathroom. And so taking the bus to make doctor's appointment, going to buy a meal, learning dollars and things wasn't easy. I was really, really hard, but I believed in prayer and um, Heavenly Father have made me uh, who I am today. Do you feel like you have a stronger relationship with God because of going through those experiences? With everything that happened to me, I never, um, I never knew I will survive. Mm-hmm. But um, I knew that uh, from uh, my childhood, I have a foundation or understand uh, what our God um, and what's our purpose in this life. And God um, was born Christian, and and uh, I believe in prayer. And I know that when you are in in trouble, when you are in in difficulties, is not the end. And um, I kept praying uh, for our heavenly Father to help me, even if I wasn't able to ask what I I want, because I didn't know what I want. Um, so, but he he knew how faithful I was and he continued helping me. So I didn't do anything special. It's, it's just Heavenly Father was preparing me to be who I am today. So now you find yourself married, five children. All of that's a lot of work besides just providing for the family. But then you made the extra step of founding Utah Valley Refugees. The idea came when a strange man uh, took me in his house and helped me uh, send me to school and get um, a degree. So the time I went, uh, when I finished my bachelor's degree in public health, I went back to him and said, now I'm done. What can I do? 
to help you because I, he was an old man. I thought he's gonna tell me, yeah, you come and take care of me, you know. Uh, but he told me one thing is, is go out there and help other people. I I remembered the same language my mother used to use, uh, saying that never eat yourself without helping anyone. So my mother is a charitable woman. Even if she's poor, she has nothing, she still go to the village and pick up people, children and share the small uh, piece of food she have. And that's where I kind of carried on. Uh, the, the, the word my friend who took me out of the homelessness used that go out over and help others reminded me my mother uh, kind word and, and, and charitable life she lived. And, and uh, I'm like, I need to carry on this. And I said that in my life, my entire life, I will do everything I can do to help people. I will not allow anyone to, to be homeless as long as I have a way to help them. When I got a job in Salt Lake City helping refugees uh, to get access to medical care, that was my position in the organization I, I, I was working with, I found out the same problem uh, refugees are having the same problem I had before. Keep asking, like, what can we help in order to prevent homelessness? So that's why I decided most refugees we have here, we help here, we get them out of the shelter. Come and give them a second chance. Give them a life. Heavenly Father you know, is on my side and, and he's helping me. For me, helping people is not, is not my glory. It's, it's, it's Heavenly Father because everything I have done, I just do little things and that little things brings more powerful result where people going to be helped more and, and more and more. To me, helping people is, a, is just a, a calling. A friendship is always the key to everything, not only from the community or the host community, but even from us uh, refugee uh, population. Yeah, it is hard. Um, and I have I've been able to work with those people who are doctors in their own country, but they are like cleaning the buildings and things because of the language barrier. And I think the um, being a friend of someone is the key to help and break all the barriers. I was one of those people who felt that I'm no longer existent. I think it will be good for people to hear, not only uh, for the American community here, but as well as uh, the refugee community. What I have heard here about is there's no purpose for me to live anymore. Our Heavenly Father, He knows us, and if we are grateful and, and faithful to Him, and uh, no matter what religion you are from, uh, He will help you. Thanks to Leonard Begalwa, who spoke with us about his journey making a home in the U.S. The difficulties didn't end when he landed here, but he decided to use what he learned to help others in the same situation. We're talking about grief today, and one powerful experience of grief is when our expectations change through our own actions or those of others. I spoke with Mark Miner, a longtime volunteer facilitator with the Latter-day Saint Addiction Recovery Program about how addiction upended his sense of self, but eventually led to a connection with God in prison. I grew up in a very happy home, or so it seemed, till I was around six, maybe going on seven, and I realized that there was something wrong. My mom, she was devastated one day. I've never seen my mom like that. She was crying. She couldn't talk. And I kept asking her mom, what's wrong? And she wouldn't tell me. She would just shake her head. And finally, my dad stuck his head around the corner. We were in the kitchen, and I saw this awful look on his face that I'd never seen before. And at that moment, my mom blurted out, your dad doesn't love me anymore. He loves another woman. Are little kids ever given a manual on how to fix their parents? (laughs) No. But do little kids sometimes feel responsible to try to please their parents and fix their parents? And in my young mind, I thought, well, if I can just be good enough, dad will love mom again. I would try to do everything my parents wanted us to do around the house and uh, in the yard. I tried to be this perfect kid. Over the next few years, I never missed a day of school, even when I was sick. And I even got pretty good at sports. And I thought I was on the right track. Why is it that kids do that, that they 
think it's on them? Is it because their behavior is the only thing in their control and everything else is out? I think in my case, that was the only thing that I knew to do. Mm. I had a very idealistic mind, and I thought, if I can just find the key to make dad happy, he will love mom and we'll be a happy family again. I knew that my parents liked it when we went to church, and my sister Leslie and I never missed church. I probably prayed 15 times a day as a little kid. I grew up with this innate sense that God was there and I could always talk to him. Did you feel that when you when you prayed? Did you feel some connection? I did. And I wasn't able to fully articulate uh, how I felt. All I knew is I felt God was listening and that God was loving. This seemed to work for a number of years. I got straight A's in school, uh, made some all-star teams. My dad went to Vietnam for a year. That was one of the actually more spiritual experiences in our family. Before my dad left, he got us all together and said, guys, we don't talk a lot about prayer, but I'm going to pray every day for you, and you pray every day for me, and whenever I get back, we'll be together again as a family. And he was gone for 13, 14 months, and he came back. We were living in the D.C. area, and I remember the plane landed, and my dad came down the ramp. My mom ran out to him and hugged him and kissed him. And I remember thanking God that my family was back together. I said, it's all been worth it. And for a few months, things were good. And then I heard another argument. And I heard accusations about another woman. And I realized my dad had started drinking again. I thought that I had failed. Mm. My best wasn't good enough. Uh, Gradually, the fire in me went out. I just started to feel less and less, like I could be this perfect version that I thought God or my parents expected me to be. My dad decided to work a civil service job, and we moved down to Sierra Vista, Fort Huachuca, Arizona. And this was right at the end of my sophomore year of high school. I thought I'd died and gone to hell because it was 100 degrees, and I left all my friends behind, and I was in this strange place in a small town I would go up to the military base, play basketball with the soldiers. It was my escape from the reality that I was in a a family that didn't seem to love each other anymore. I went to church a couple of times down there, but I thought, you know, what's the use? I thought God was greatly disappointed in me because I hadn't fulfilled the mission that I thought was mine. No loving God would ever put a mission like that on a young kid. But... I wasn't dealing with absolute reality. I was dealing with the noise in my head and the lack of connection in my heart. And I was starting to disbelieve in teachers and preachers and parents and society as a whole. And one day at the gym, I wandered out into the enlisted men's barracks next door, and they had a beer machine there. You could buy a beer for a quarter. It did something that gaping hole in my soul of nothingness and emptiness and lack of connection felt filled to a degree with something a little bit warm and fuzzy. And I thought, oh, I've discovered something. And a day or two later, I did the same thing. And long story short, by the time school started, I was going up every day and buying six or eight beers and drinking them. And I said, okay, this is how I'm going to get through life. I didn't realize that I was setting myself up for addiction. I mean, nobody decides they're going to become an addict. Right. Right. But 18 months from the day that I took that first drink, I got arrested. I was in February of my senior year, and I got arrested for two burglaries to pay for my addiction to a couple of the hardest drugs on the planet. So because of those events, you end up in jail— actually in prison, serving a sentence. And you told me once about an experience you had that really was the thing that helped you make a lasting change. Can you talk to me about that? And I heard and felt a voice say, what do you believe in? And I dropped to my knees and I prayed for the first time out loud in probably close to 10 years. And I said, God, I believe that you're there, but I don't really know who you are. 
And I don't know why you would even want to care about me because I'm a convict, I'm an alcoholic, and I'm an addict. And I have failed at every important thing in my life. And I wasn't expecting this, but I got a response. I heard and felt these words, Mark, it's because I love you. And they were the most real and profound words that I've ever experienced. And it was almost like a helmet got ripped off and I could see and hear and feel my creator for the first time. And I stayed on my knees for a couple of hours. And at first there were a lot of tears of shame that I had cut myself off from this source of acceptance and immense love. And then I was just pouring out my soul with all my regrets and all my sorrow and all my hopes and dreams. And before I got up, those tears had been turned into tears of joy because I knew that this was my creator, the God of all the universe. And although I didn't know all of his characteristics, I knew that he was love mm. and that he loved me. And he was personal because he had called me by name. When you were feeling low before this experience, I mean, would you have called that grief? I think grief is a very accurate word for it. And although I don't know that I would have called it grief at the time, right now I definitely would because I mourned that I couldn't fix my parents and that this life trajectory that I had imagined, that I'm going to be a good person, that I'm going to make a difference in the world, had been totally derailed. And here I was in prison again and then again. And so grief is as good of a description as there, as concise and good as there is. I've always called it discouragement, depression. Those were elements of it. But grief is the bigger picture. Mm. That's what it was, Steve. Uh, just a, a loss. Yes. A loss of what I thought was my soul. I mean, I was created to do something, and I thought I'd failed at it. Mm. But now I, I was starting to be schooled by a loving, personal, caring God who I hadn't even imagined in 10 years. I mean, yes, this was the same God I had talked to, I think, when I was four, five, six <laughs> years old. And I remember asking him, well, what's next? And he goes, you get to decide. And I go, well, come on, just tell me. And I had this feeling, look over there. And in the corner of my room on the window shelf, was a little pocket New Testament. They were in all the cells. And I went over and picked it up. There was a quarter-inch dust on mine. I had never looked at it before. <laughs> but I opened it, and I said, okay, what next? Well, you can read. <laughs> <laughs> and it started with Psalms and Proverbs, and then the whole New Testament. But I started to believe in Jesus. And when I was able to go a little further with things, I started to attend various church services there in the prison. Would, would you call this hope? Yes. Oh, there was very much an awakening of hope. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was excitement. There was discovery. I was finding a God with whom I could do business. Mm -hmm. It wasn't this God who was terribly disappointed in me and writing down thousands of pages of the times that I'd screwed up. No, this was a God who was on my side and who was leading me on. I remember that conversation with God. He said, how do you feel about yourself? And I said, well, honestly, not very good. I've really messed up your life. And he clarified, he goes, no, how do you feel about yourself right now? And I said, well, right now, because you're there and I can talk to you, I feel much better, I feel hope. And you tell me that you love me and that really feels good. Well, if you love someone, how do you treat them? And I thought about my mom, and I thought about all the people in my life who I've loved. And I said, well, if you love someone, you protect them. You watch over them. You care for them. You pray about them. You cherish them. And God then answered, well, if you cherish someone, what's your decision? And then I said, well, I'll probably have to pray 400 times a day. And for the first time, I heard God chuckle. And he said, I'll be here. I'll be here. Long story short, that began my journey with God. That was Mark Minor. 
He met with me in the studio to discuss how a deep connection with God has helped him face sorrow and addiction. His experiences and witness have contributed to the healing and recovery of thousands of people struggling with addiction over the last 20 years. Our final guest today is Adam Miller, who talks to us about the grief of passing time. Adam is a professor of philosophy at Collin College in McKinney, Texas. He spoke with me via Zoom. The basic problem at the heart of the human experience is time, right? The passing of time, the way that things arise and are given and stay for a time and then pass away just on a minute by minute or even second by second basis in terms of our experience. Uh, And that's part of, I think, the way that God is not just interested in having created the world, but he's interested in continuing to create the world. Time is the cost that we pay to participate in the world's ongoing creation. Uh, And then I think at the heart of a Christian discipleship is the business of being willing to participate in this ongoing creation of the world, despite the losses it involves, uh, rather than resisting it. Rather than resisting. So inevitably, I'm going to lose someone I love. And so I can say, the whole creation, my life is ruined, or nothing can ever be the same in a way that I can be happy with again. How do you learn to see that as part of not just something created and then stuff goes wrong, but that we are actually part of a constant recreation, that we are a different person from moment to moment and life stage to life stage, and find some hope in that while acknowledging the difficult emotions it's one thing to talk about it theoretically and it's a whole other thing <laughs> to live it yourself on a you know yeah. day-to-day hour by hour minute by minute basis but one of the reasons why i think christian discipleship is so crucial to responding appropriately to the world's continual passing and continual recreation is that at the heart of Christian discipleship is that commandment to forgive, right? We have to forgive the fact that the world didn't give us quite what we thought we wanted it to give us when we had what we had, and we have to continually forgive uh, the world for the loss uh, of the things that that we did have as these things pass away. And so I think Christian uh, Christian discipleship involves a kind of continual cultivation on my part of a willingness to forgive the world's passing away uh, and to respond then instead with, with love and kindness and appreciation for what there was while, while we had it. I have a, one particular photo whenever I flip through a family book and see me carrying my, uh, one of my sons when he was four on my back. Mm-hmm. I can't not stop and look at that because... I am just pierced through my heart with that moment. And who he thought I was at that time, which which I never really was, but he was young enough to to think I was everything. And and what I felt with him. So I love that moment to look at it, but there is a little pain in knowing that was a th- a thing that is now gone. And even in resurrection, I will have that memory, but not that moment. One of my strongest tactile memories as a father is of uh, you know picking up my five-year-old and three-year-old sons and tucking them under my arms like footballs and carrying them up the stairs to bed at night as they uh-huh. as they squirmed and giggled. Uh, one of those boys is headed to college in just a couple of days, and <laughs> and one is a junior in high school. <laughs> Good luck carrying uh, them up the stairs. Yeah, they're going to carry me up the stairs these days. You know, even if uh, the promise God makes uh, that we can be together forever in some sense, my sons and I, uh, even if that promise uh, uh, holds true, it's still the case that that my five-year-old and my three-year-old, <laughs> they're never coming back, right? Mm. Uh, those, boy, those boys, that particular moment, that, cer- that particular kind of relationship that we had, uh, that's gone. And uh, in order to love and continue loving those boys that has to be willing to uh, to let go uh, of what has passed, uh, greet 
what is present, regardless mm. of, of whether it's quite what I wanted or not, uh, and then respond with whatever good is needed. We're constantly measuring every present moment against what we thought we wanted it to be, and then finding it wanting and then resisting and rejecting it in some sense. But that both prevents us from appreciating what it is, uh, and it prevents us from loving what good it has to offer. I found myself for the past 15, 20 years uh, orienting my religious life around one basic practice, the attempt to uh, expose myself to and recognize and accept the truth, the truth about who and what I am, the truth about the people that I love, the truth about the world of which I am a part. Um, and the harder I've tried and the deeper I've gone and the more successful I've been in, in exposing myself to this to these truths, the, the more obvious it's been to me that, that time is the fundamental factor that's shared by them all. Right? It's, the, it's the framework for, for everyone and everything that, uh, that I have and that I am. Um, and so to, to be willing to feel it, to, to see time and to feel time and to witness its rising and its passing uh, has felt fundamental to me. And, and, and I've tried to see it both at that most granular, intimate, personal level, and I've, I've tried to be more sensitive to it at those, at those larger social, uh, global scales as well. I think something like grief or mourning uh, is the work that love does, right? That we couldn't grieve if we hadn't loved. Mm. Uh, and also that in some ways, uh, recognizing and accepting the passing away of the people and things that we love, that's the precondition for loving them as what they are. Right, it's the precondition also for appreciating them in the moment. If, as a father, uh, feeling the weight of those boys in my arms as I carry them up the stairs, if I'm sensitive to the fact that this moment is not going to come back as I carry them up the stairs, right, that also powerfully invests me with the capacity to love and appreciate them even even more deeply. Uh, if I'm sensitive to that as as the moment itself is is unfolding, and so and so. I, I think in some ways, it's not just the case that I wouldn't grieve if I hadn't loved. It's the case that my willing to witness this passing, uh, to mourn, to grieve, uh, is itself a precondition for my ability to love. We have this unique teaching in Latter-day Saint doctrine of a God who weeps. That even knowing good eventual outcome and where he's pulling us to and what he's pulling us through that in witnessing our sorrow, like like Jesus with Mary and Martha, knowing full well that he was going to call Lazarus back to life, still wept with them. Is that hopeful to you to have a God who does have sorrows as well as joys? It seems to me that there are two basic ways to think about God. We can think about God as uh, being in some way fundamentally outside of time and untouched by time, right? We can think about time as a kind of temporary interruption in eternity, and that we suffer loss for the moment as time passes, but soon enough we'll escape time altogether, and we'll return to be with God, and, and time won't be a factor. Things won't pass, they won't change, they won't be lost. That, I think, is a pretty traditional Western theistic way of thinking about God, but there is a door open to us uh, as Latter-day Saints, I think, to think about God as being in time, to think about time as being fundamental to God's own experience of reality, uh, to think of him as being in it with us in the world's passing and recreation uh, from beginning to end, and to think about the gospel itself as not a way then of escaping from time and the losses that it involves, but to think about the gospel as the art then of handling those losses in a way that redeems them even as it doesn't necessarily prevent them. There is something about real, persistent, underlying, substantial dimension of my experience of this world 
that has convinced me to the core that it's possible to do and experience what Jesus Christ promised was possible to do and experience. That it's possible for me to undergo the kind of transformation that Jesus promised, that it's possible for me to experience the kind of love and joy that he promised, even amidst all of life's troubles and passings and, and sufferings. That's what I'm convicted about. Mm. That's what convinces me to pray again, to show up at church again, to, to serve again. Uh, not because I have any certain sort of conviction about, about things other than this world, but because in this world, as part of this world, something that I am happy to call God keeps showing up in my experience and saving me and transforming me. So we've talked about lots of different kinds of grief, and yet all of these people seem to have had to, because of that process, I think become deeper, richer people. And I was very touched by Dr. Cacciatore talking about how she's always thought of herself as an atheist, and this experience pushed her to open up her worldview just a little bit. And for me, that's similar to Adam Miller talking about we have to reconsider what we think we know about um, the eternities, really, what we will regain um, in the eternities. So, mm-hmm. One thing that has stuck with me since I heard it is what Mark Miner said about learning to deal with a God that he could do business with. Mm. That one phrase really stuck out to me because sometimes we might think about our faith as a way of a Band-Aid over some of our grief and not something that we might need to, you know, go into business with God with. And kind of beginning this more active partnership um, has been something that's really stuck with me. And not just life not turning out as we expected, but finding out God isn't who we expected Mm -hmm. can be a very disorienting thing and yet ultimately a very inspiring and grounding thing. This episode was produced by Heather Bigley with help from Peter Ellison and Austin Ball. Sound design and editing from Sam Clausen and Daniel Phillips. We'd like to thank Adam Miller, Mark Miner, Leonard Bagalwa, Joanne Cacciatore, and Julie Myler Donovan for sharing their thoughts and experiences with us. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. If you like the show, help spread the word. Be sure you leave a comment or a review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at InGoodFaithPod, and our Facebook page is at InGoodFaithPodcast. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon, right here, In Good Faith.